The Recognitions. It's an odd title, isn't it? The Recognitions. In English, we use the singular recognition often enough, but the plural form is rare, especially with that definite article in front of it. It sounds unidiomatic, like a literal translation of a foreign title, which it is. That's the first potentially off-putting thing that a customer looking over the new releases in a bookstore 50 years ago would have noticed, and perhaps the only thing that was needed to cause the customer to pass over it and keep looking. For while some people are attracted by the rare and unusual, most people aren't. But had a curious customer paused long enough to examine this new novel with the odd title, several other obstacles to buying it would have begun to appear, beginning with the cover. Unlike the majority of novels at the time, there was no pictorial representation of the novel's setting, of its principal character, or of a significant scene. Instead, just big block letters alternating between red and gold against a plain white background, broken into correct but misleading syllables that made the odd title look even odder. The re-cogni-shuns. The lower half, a novel by William Gaddis, would have meant nothing to the average reader. Gaddis had published only one brief essay before that, along with an excerpt from The Recognitions in an obscure literary magazine. And the length, 956 pages, the size of three or four standard novels. Again, some of us are instinctively attracted to thick, long books, but others are reluctant to make the large investment of time they require. So by this point, the huge novel with the weird title by an unknown writer would have scared off most customers. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, April 19th, 2021, and today, for 42 minutes, we will again consider William Gaddis's 1955 masterpiece, The Recognitions, this time with an extremely special guest. Stephen Moore wrote the book on Gaddis literally multiple times. In fact, it has been said that Moore invented Gaddis studies when he published his comprehensive reader's guide to The Recognition in 1982. Stephen Moore, Ph.D., Rutgers 1988, is the author and editor of several books on William Gaddis, as well as the novel, An Alternate History, in two volumes, 2010 and 2013. From 1988 to 1996, he was managing editor of the Review of Com- Contemporary Fiction slash Dulkey Archive Press, and for decades, he has reviewed books for a variety of journals and newspapers, principally the Washington Post. He lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and most recently published My Back Pages in 2018 by Zero Gram Press, as well as Alexander Theroux, a fan's notes, in 2020, also by Zero Gram Press. Before he embarked on his massive history of the novel, Stephen Moore was best known as a tireless promoter of innovative fiction, mostly by way of hundreds of book reviews published from the late 70s onward. Virtually all have been gathered in this collection, My Back Pages, which offers a panoramic view of modern fiction, ranging from well-known authors like Barth and Pynchon to lesser-known but deserving ones, mainly published by small presses. The second half of the book reprints Moore's best essays. Several deal with novelist William Gass, on whom Moore is considered the leading authority and other writers associated with him. Two essays deal with David Foster Wallace, whom Moore knew, and other essays treat such matters as book reviewing, postmodernism, the beat movement, maximalism, gay literature, punctuation, nympholepsy, and the history of the novel. More information about him can be found on his website, stephenmoore.info. And at this point, I think it's I must invoke Wayne and Garth by saying we are not worthy, but it goes without saying it really truly is an honor <laughs> to be joined today by Dr. Stephen Moore. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Uh, I got a slight cold, but otherwise I'm flattered to be on your show. So thanks for uh, inviting me. Well, thank you. I think, um, boy, I just, I I don't even feel like I've scratched the surface of your work, but we probably should start with just when and how you came to the recognitions. Okay. Um, I discovered it in 19... 75, uh, when JR came out, I idly was glancing through Time magazine, came across a review of JR, 
And there was a sidebar on uh, the recognitions, which just had been re- uh, reissued in paperback a year earlier. And at that time, I, and the, the, the reviewer described it as sort of an American equivalent to Joyce's Ulysses, which was music to my ears, because at that time I was a real Joyce fanatic. So, you know, a thousand-page American novel that emulates Ulysses certainly is something I had to look into. So I called around, found a bookstore that had it, read it, and was just blown away by it. And uh, that pretty much changed my life. I mean, in a literal way, almost everything I've done since 1975 was influenced by my decision to, well, first into reading the book and then to write about it, which led to all sorts of other things, jobs, other books, and currently living in Ann Arbor. And none of that would have happened uh, except for that novel. So, so that's how it happened. Well, how many times did you read it before you decided that you needed to write about it? I, I think it was only once, because after I read it, I was surprised I had never heard of that. I was only 24 at that time and just got out of college, but still, I, I was starting to hear all the major names. And So anyway, I went to the uh, Denver Public Library, that's where I was living at the time. In Denver, not in the library, although I've spent quite a few, <laughs> much of my life living in libraries. And uh, I went to look to, uh, to see what had been written on it. I went to the MLA bibliography, which tracks everything that's written, and there was almost nothing. You know, and it just shocked me because I, I thought, you know, how can a novel like this, you know, seem like it's, it's the kind of novel that's written for scholars. I mean, there's so much meat there to dig into and allusions and all that, you know. So anyway, uh, as I said, I was a Joyce fanatic. I was writing a big glossary of Finnegan's Wake at the time, which seemed hopeless. So I thought, well, instead of being the hundredth person to write about Joyce, I'm going to be the first person to write about Gaddis, the first person to write a book on Gaddis. So um, the first thing that occurred to me is that it, the book needed to be annotated because there's so much, well, as you know, you've you've read it. There's so many you know, literary allusions and uh, words in foreign languages and Latin book titles and this and that. So just to make, you know, if I want to discuss a book, I need to understand what's on the page, and that means literally every word on the page. So uh, following a few Joyce models, I decided to start annotating the book, and that's what um, that's what led to it. But it struck me right after reading it that this is a major work that needed to be written about, needed to be part of the American canon. So I kind of arrogantly decided, if no one else is going to do it, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> well, then I have kind of a chicken and egg question. So as you begin to take it apart in your William Gaddis biography that was also your your dissertation for your PhD, you you, you talk about um, alchemy and Jung. Did did this book train you, or were you also interested in, the, in similar things as Gaddis? Oh, yeah, no, I was. In fact, that's one of the great appeals of the book, because at the time I was reading, at the time I read uh, Gaddis, I was fascinated by just the origins of religion and the psychology of religion. So I was reading, you know, Jung on religion and Jung, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, Jung and Freud. And I was reading things like The Golden Bough by Fraser, which is sort of about the history of magic and religion. And there, you know, lo and behold, on page 14 or something, Gaddis is quoting from The Golden Bough. (laughs) I was also reading people like uh, Robert Graves, a white goddess, and that too turned out to be one of... um, Gaddis' sources. I, I spotted uh, little things there. So the, the subject matter is one thing that really grabbed me. He was, Gaddis was right in my wheelhouse, uh, talking about the same kind of you know, origins of religion and uh, the occult and uh, mythology and all that. So, yeah, I, I was already, in a sense, I'd already been training myself for a book like this to pour all that into. So when you talk about Reverend the Reverend, uh, do you say Gwine or Gwion or I've always, Gwyn? I've always, call, I've always called it Gwyn, yeah. you know, like the late actor Fred Gwyn. In fact, I was with Gaddis once and uh, with some students, and someone asked him how to pronounce a name, and he said, I don't know. He said he never actually said it aloud. <laughs> but uh, the modern equivalent of that is Gwyn in, in Welsh, you know, so that's what I've always used, one syllable. Well, so you say you were you know, a Joycean, um, and when you came to this book, did you see the work in ter- in those terms then? I mean, because so that's what's kind of fascinating. A lot of people call it the American Ulysses, but then in your bio you say, no, this couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I hope I didn't go that far, but I mean, there's some superficial uh, similarities. I mean, it's both big books, they're both rather... Um, 
you know, sardonic. They're both kind of experimental in some ways. You know, not not that avant-garde-ish, but and they uh, both of them are uh, deal with religion, and both of them, you know, so there's and the both of them use the dash to indicate dialogue rather than uh, quotation marks. Uh, both of them are, you know, encyclopedic novels, as they call them, manipian satires. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, similarities, but it turned out to be rather superficial, I thought. Um, but still, it's close enough. <laughs> you know, American Ulysses is a good enough, uh, you know, two-word describe, description for it. But Gaddis wasn't using Ulysses as... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, as his no, model. He, he was uh, he was quite adamant about that in later years, that he... Um, when he was in college, you know, someone was passing around a copy, and he read the final monologue by uh, Molly Bloom. But that's it. He didn't actually read, and never did read the novel. And no, he wasn't based on that. He was more in the uh, spirit of uh, you know, uh, the great Russian novels. You know, he was writing a big novel the way Dostoevsky wrote big novels, and uh, Gogol, and those kind of people. And uh, certain English modernists like Evelyn Waugh and Ronald Furbank and um, you know, he was coming from a different tradition than, than Joyce. Well, so the, the thing that strikes me is that this, in 1955, seems like such an achievement that there just isn't any precedent for what he was doing. Um, but, I mean, of course, if yeah. you do a little reading, you know, there's always things that you're influenced and uh, inspired by. But now Joyce and Elliot kind of set out to do what they were doing in 1922 with with you know Ulysses and uh, the Wasteland, I'm wondered what what was Gaddis, you know, what was his intention? Do you think, or can you speculate about that? Well, his model, he said from the very beginning, was Goethe's Faust, and uh, elements of Faust, of course, are still in the novel. But uh, when he first started, it was just going to be a parody of the Faust story, so that was his model, but not. Obviously not a play format, but you know this uh, the uh, confrontation of good and evil and searching for knowledge that goes beyond the the ordinary. Uh, there's all sorts of mystical notions and in, in mystical elements in uh, Goethe's Faust. So he was sort of working. That was his main uh, model. But I'm glad you mentioned Eliot because that that had a huge influence on um, Gaddis. He loved Eliot and the language and um i think his use of literary allusion came strongly from uh, the footnotes Eliot wrote for the wasteland you know the idea of writing a, a modern the wasteland is you know set in modern times but it has all these echoes of ancient literature and ancient religious practices as revealed by those footnotes so i think that and and the language too remember the wasteland has a lot of demotic arguments between people and this and that, alternating between very lofty passages of philosophy and all. So th that was his model. I mean, obviously, he didn't, Gaddis didn't write a 30-page uh, you know, poem, but I think that's where he got the idea of using like literary illusion and uh, the sense that something's wrong with modern society that Eliot certainly uh, conveys in uh, the wasteland. I mean, Gaddis really felt that way in post-World War II America. So, you know, you combine a Russian novel with uh, Eliot's wasteland, and that's that's pretty much what Gaddis, I think, was doing. The only other, I guess, American antecedent would be something like Moby Dick, but I, I Gaddis never really talked much about Melville, so I, I don't think that would be a source. But so the interesting thing, I mean, I really was taken with Moby Dick for a number of years, and um, there's a lot of depth there, but there's something that this book does is that it's it's um, it makes you really work to to uh, um, understand its beauty. What, do you you know as a professional reader, what do you what do you call these kind of books that really make the reader participate in the act of the the art? Um. Well, you know, uh, Roland Barthes made that distinction between writerly novels and readerly novels, okay. which is uh, kind of alien to what Gaddis is thinking. He didn't think much of the French uh, uh, theorists and all that. But, you know, writerly novels are those that are um, like a writer's novel, you, you know, require a certain amount of uh, effort and the participation by the reader, whereas readerly novels are just mainstream fiction. It doesn't, you know, there's no 
you just read the novels for enjoyment. So there is that, yeah. And um, Gaddis, uh, yeah, he's obviously not the only one. The whole most of the modernists are harder to read than the average novel. Um, so, and then there's that that whole tradition going back to you know Tristram Shandy and Rabelais and on and all that. So. But uh, yeah, I think that writerly versus readerly is good enough. But it definitely um, the idea of the reader participating. He didn't. Gaddis didn't want to make his uh, works hard for people, but he did require them to pay attention and to make connections. And uh, he didn't think he had to spell everything out the way a mainstream writer would. So he did expect uh, people to participate in his novels. The, the reader is almost a co-creator. Uh, especially in JR, which ups the antes of reader participation. You really have to pay attention there or else you'll get lost within 10, 20 pages. Do you put those two works on the same level or do you you feel one is superior to the other? You know, I, I feel JR is the greater work. I mean, when I first came to, when I first read the two, I, I read the recognitions first and a few months later I read JR. And I, although I liked J.R. and enjoyed it, it didn't interest me the way that uh, the recognitions did, especially because of the subject matter. I mean, the whole world of finance and uh, corporations and all that didn't have near the appeal to me that the religion and magic and all that did that uh, the first novel had. But over the years, though, you know, just uh, as I've read both many, many times, I, I now see that J.R. I think is the greater achievement. Um, it's also a little trickier, a little harder, I think, than the recognitions for beginning readers, but no, I think that is his finest achievement. Yeah. Okay. So I think I, he does too. I, most of the, uh, the recognitions occurs, you know, late 1949. Am I correct? Is, is JR happening in like one month in 1974 or is it harder to pin down? It's harder to pin down, but it's something like three months, like September to December, Somewhere in yeah seventy three seventy four in there, the first essay I ever published on Gaddis tried to pin down the chronologies for both of his books, uh, and I just couldn't quite do it. Um, and Gaddis later admitted that he was a bit elastic uh, with his chronologies. He didn't really mean to have them tied down that way. I got spoiled by uh, Ulysses because you know critics have mapped that thing down by the hour. You know they know exactly what's going on at every minute and all that. And I, I just assumed that Gaddis had worked out a similar chronology for his two novels, first two, but he didn't. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, roughly, as you said, 1949 to 50 is where most of the recognition takes place. And somewhere in 73 or 74 is when most of uh, J.R. takes place. Well, so that would be a good uh, segue into David Foster Wallace. I know a lot of people are really like to speculate about his chronology in Infinite Jest. You were one of the, the first readers of that manuscript. Um, did, when, when you're helping him edit that, do you ask a lot of those hard questions or is that more, uh, more work for later that, you know, when you want to nail down chronology? Yeah, I, no, I, I don't think it matters that much in, in, in his book because it's, um, I mean, first of all, he has those fanciful names for the years, and I didn't try to figure out what those were. In fact, the first draft I read, I don't think it had that little chart of dates that's in the published version. Oh, yeah. I'm not quite sure about that. And and I, I, I knew it was taking place in the future, but um, and it's mostly contemporary. You know, I mean, it all takes place within, what, a year or so? Um, he wrote that introduction, that first chapter of Infinite Jest that takes place a year later was not in the early draft. So what I read was all kind of continuous, I, I felt. And no, I didn't worry so much about that. I was a little more concerned about the order, the, the order of the chapters. I, I gave him some advice about that, which I'm surprised and happy that he took. But, uh, and I pointed out a few other little, little things. He, uh, he had something wrong. With, he had a, Something. Uh, what was it? Yeah, he had Aldous Huxley still alive in 1968 when I and I pointed out to him that Huxley died in 1963. You know, little things like that. But otherwise, he was asking me mostly just you know he needed to cut it down and he asked me what chapters I didn't think worked as well as others. So that was my main focus. The other stuff, since it was still a work in progress, I didn't think it was time to start, you know, getting down to the nitty gritty about the, such things. Yeah, so that's interesting because when I first read that, I thought that 
the way it starts kind of in the future and then moves back into the past that he designed it intentionally to be you know the infinite jest that you the reader kind of miss a lot of that stuff when you start because you don't have any context and then you want to come back and start reading again and you get lost in the in the media like the characters do in the book do you think that was intentional like that or is that just how i felt about it no i think you're right i mean yeah there is a kind of a, a mobius loop uh mobius strip uh structure about it because Early on, there's some, uh, yeah, you need to first read this, the second half to figure out what's going on in the very first chapter, and then the references to Hal and um, Gately digging up a the, the head, which, again, doesn't make any sense when you're first reading it. So, yeah, there is a sense where you have to, um, you do have to start over again, almost like Finnegan's Wake, which, you know, ends mid-sentence at the end, and you have to go back to the beginning to reread it. So, yeah, I think he did have something like that in mind. Of course, the book club speculates. Do you think David um, was looking towards the recognitions as a model f- as for that work? No, my understanding is he hadn't read Gaddis at that time. He read him. Uh, let's see when a, a little bit later, and I he didn't share my enthusiasm for Gaddis. He respected Gaddis in a lot of ways, especially the way Gaddis conducted himself in. The public discourse, you know, he wasn't big on publicity or anything like that. But no, I don't think it had that much uh, effect on him, especially the structural way that you're suggesting. Well, so speaking of publicity, um, you you knew D- David pretty well, I guess, or you were an acquaintance. Did you happen to see the the film about him? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I did see that. Um, I thought the actor, what's his name, Jason something? Yeah, um, something with an S, maybe. He, 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 Siegel. He, yeah, he was, right, right, right. He was a little too big and bulky uh, to resemble Wallace, who was very much very athletic. He looked like a well-built baseball player rather than a hulking you know, fullback. But he did he did catch the, uh, the voice and some of the mannerisms, the facial mannerisms, so that was quite good. And, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the film and enjoyed the book as well. Yeah. Do you I, do you think Dave would have been just horrified by that, that it's the opposite of what he was trying to accomplish? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think he would have been quite embarrassed by that. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, he, you know, he, he participated in publicity as far as giving readings and stuff like that and, and, you know, giving into interviews and all that. But, um, no, yeah, seeing himself up there on the screen like that, I, I think it would have embarrassed him to death. He wouldn't have miss, necessarily miss, uh, disliked it, but it, that wouldn't have been pleasant for him, no. Hmm. Well, so then back to Gaddis and intention. So, like, what I kind of thought was fun was, you know, all the different ways you can interpret recognition. And so do you think it was part of his intention that, like, What's fun about that work is that oftentimes things are happening that you're not aware of and that the closer you read or the more times you read it, you you gain the recognition of knowing that these characters that are in the frame with the, the one that's, you know, the main one right now, you know, it's like if you recognize them, you understand how they all connect. Yeah, I mean, just as the characters are, uh, especially Wyatt, seeking those moments of recognition, um, which he says only happens about seven times in your lifetime. Only about seven times can you actually recognize the world for what it actually is, what's actually going on without all the veils of, you know, culture and everything else. And at the same time, that, it's, that happens when you're reading, too. You start, rec- uh, especially the second time, you start recognizing little moments where, you know, this little incident on page 56 is echoed on page 783, which, you, of course, you didn't notice the first time. And you recognize little, you know, little tidbits here and there, and you get to you get to understand the world of the recognitions, just as uh, the characters themselves are trying to understand, or some of them are trying to understand their world, the world they live in. They're trying to look through past all the uh, what culture tells them to do, what religion tells them to do, and try to grasp that you know a real clear, clean look at what what the world actually is. Um, 
and what's actually going on in the world, which is hard to do with all the filters and uh, veils in front of us. Well, it's hard to do as a reader, too. I, I know that um, it felt <laughs> the second time I read it was a, a lot. Uh, it was a, a much it was just a, a better experience. So how I'm not a real close reader, though, so I often need to read things two times at least and three times sometimes. But I'm how well in 1975 did you pick up on a lot of the intricacies no, I was like most readers. I <laughs> had trouble following some of it. Um, like I said, I had a bit of a background in some of the subject matter he was talking about when he was referring to, um, you know, like I said, I could spot the quotations from Golden Bough and think, and I recognized a lot of the Elliot allusions and stuff. But yeah, there were parts where I had trouble finding it, uh, following it. But then again, that's uh, that's one of the markers of what I was earlier calling a writerly novel. Several people, Nabokov, William Gass, they all say that your first reading of a, a truly you know, great work of literature is just a warm-up for your second reading. Your second reading is the one where you, you finally start understanding more and more what's going on. Whereas with uh, reader, uh, writer, let me, let me get it straight, readerly books, one reading is usually enough. You, know, you read one Agatha Christie mystery and one reading is good enough if you've been paying attention. But for any work of literature, you have to read it. You know, the first reading is just a warm-up. You're not really expected to uh, get everything out of it that the author put into it. My first reading of the Ulysses was you know, the same way, and I'm sure for most people. So, yeah, no, Gaddis didn't expect you – know, it sounds very arrogant for any author to say that you, you must read my book at least two or three times, especially if you're the author of a thousand-page novel. But you know, in a sense, that's what you need to do, you know? <laughs> And then, I, yeah, I guess it, it's just amazing to me. It just seems like in 1955, um, it just so amazing that he would would do something. Because I I do feel like on some level it is on par with Ulysses. Would you say that it's stretching, or is that reasonable? Um, it's pretty close. Yeah. Well. That, you know, I'm like I said, I, I, I was a Joyce was my first love before I came to uh, Gaddis, and you know, you always remember your first love. Uh, Ulysses, I think, is much more intricate in some ways, but it, it's close. But um, well, but see, the other thing here is uh, authors. I don't think realize how difficult their works are. Um, Gaddis admitted that with J.R. He later, years later, I heard him talk to. Well, I, I maybe told me that he didn't think it was as difficult as he, as people found it. Because, you know, when you're writing a novel over a long period of time, you know exactly what's going on. There's no confusion about what's, you know, the characters. You know how the plot works. So you almost take it for granted that the book is, you know, organic and should make sense. And you, some of these authors uh, lose, just can't quite realize what it's like to read something like that, you know, the first time off and how baffling it could be. So, I mean, even Joyce thought that anyone could pick up Finnegan's Wake and just read along and just pick up the bits they like and enjoy it, you know. And <laughs> some of these people are, uh, these authors are a little naive about that because uh, they've lived with the book and they know exactly what's going on. And like I said, Gaddis in later years did admit that he, J.R. was a little more difficult than he had, he had thought it was. And I, uh, I don't know if he felt that way about the recognitions, but he, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. Yeah. So as a professional reader, and the amount that you've written about so many different books, are you, are you always on the clock? In a sense. I mean, at this point, I've, I published my last, what I think is my last book last uh, last year, the Alexander Theroux book that you mentioned. And um, I'm not, I'm reading for pleasure now, you know. Um, but yeah, in the, before that, though, I was always, in a sense, on the clock, because um for many years, as you noted, I was writing book reviews for the Washington Post, and you know, if you're going to write reviews, you have to be familiar with what's going on in the literary world. So, I was everything I was reading was, in a sense, background information for um, for the next novel I wind, wind up reviewing. You know, and uh, I was always paying attention to what I you know looks sound like emerging authors are worth knowing. So. Uh, yeah, I never actually thought of myself as a professional reader, that phrase you use, but I guess in a sense I was, because it all becomes grist for the mill, you know, so if I'm 
reviewing a you know a book by Richard Ford in uh, 2001, which I think I did 2002. You know, I, I I need to have things to compare it to, and I need to have background. You know, who else is writing stories like that or write better than that? So, in a sense, yeah, you're you're kind of always on the clock. Also, in, a, in almost a literal sense, because I, I rarely had times in my life where I could devote myself full time to writing. Writing, I always had a day job, and I had to just kind of fit in the writing whenever I could, and reading whenever I could, too. So, yeah, in a sense, I guess I've always been on the clock ever since about 1975. But So then, as far as like a reading practice, is it just you read whenever you can? And then if it's, so like, that's the other interesting thing. If it's for a job, there is there is this kind of, like, I, I need to do this, and, and so you, you do it. But then if you're not as interested in, you know, the work, you know, how do you make yourself get interested, too? Yeah, no, I I love reading books, you know. So in one sense, I, I'm... I'm an amateur reader as well as a professional. I mean, I'm, I love reading, so whenever I have free time, it's either that or listening to music. And I love literature of all sorts, so um, no, it's not a job at all. I mean, except yeah, when I'm given a book review assignment, I have to re- read something I might not otherwise read. But no, most of the time I enjoy it, and um, I've rarely written bad reviews because almost every book I read is interesting in some ways. And... Uh, no, it's it's always it's always fun. I, I know I know one professor who I won't name who told me that um, he reads literature only for his classes and for books he's writing about. Uh, otherwise, uh, for free for relaxed reading, he likes to read science books. He doesn't read literature. Whereas for me, it's it's always literature. I mean, except for when I'm I love write, uh, re- reading some books about rock music. That's my you know pleasure reading. Um, I just finished reading a biography of you know, the, the lead singer of the Yardbirds, for example. I mean, I eat that kind of stuff up. But otherwise, though, I just love books and love reading and love literature. So it's you know, it's no uh, no ordeal for me to always be reading. Well, then, do you uh, occasionally read the recognitions, or is it something that you you know you've done and you don't need to do anymore? Yeah, no, I um, between 1975 and about 1985 or 86, when I wrote that Twain book on Gaddis, I read the recognition so many times I lost count. I think it was like 14 or 15 times. Mm-hmm. And you know, a fifth, <laughs> reading a thousand-page novel 15 times over the course of 10 years is, uh, is enough. I mean, I, I, at that point, I could practically narrate the book. So from that point on, I, I didn't reread the novel until uh, just last summer when I was proofreading the new New York Review books uh, version of it. So, and same with J.R. I mean, I've, over the years, I've gone back occasionally and looked at passages and stuff because I'm always um, adding to... You mentioned my reader's guide. I'm sure you're aware that that's now online. And I've, I occasionally update that and with new information and stuff. So I'm always looking at little passages and stuff. But, no, last summer was the first time I read the, the entire book front to back since about 1986 or so. Hmm. Well, so I think, I mean, I was having a discussion recently about uh, the kind of literature that I enjoy doing over and over again, and, and I was trying to understand why that is. So last summer I spent the whole summer in William H. Gass's The Tunnel, and that was a really uh. difficult book in that it w- I found it so beautiful, but, and I wanted to celebrate the book itself, but it was so hard because it was hard to separate, you know, the book from the narrator, who himself was pretty despicable, uh-huh. which is which is right. really a, an interesting literary trick. Um, and so um, it is, yeah. <laughs> would, I, I, for example, I, I just uh, about a month, a couple of months ago, I reread Lolita. Now, on the one hand, you know, uh, Humbert Humbert is a totally despicable person. But on the other hand, that is, my God, that's like that may be the greatest novel ever written. I mean, as far as just the language and the, the illusions and the rhythm and the, I mean, it's, I was just knocked, it's like the third or fourth time I've read Lolita. And every time I do, it just gets better and better. So, yeah, there, there's a, there's a perfect example right there of, you know, despicable narrator. That, uh, and yet it's a, you know, rapturous novel. But so yeah, you're right. Yeah, the tunnel is the same way. Yeah, my question for so I haven't ever read Lolita because of that, where it's like I just don't know if I want to get into that guy's mind. But 
are there moments where the careful reader realizes that you know Nabokov knows that this is a monster that he's writing about? Would you say that's true? Or oh yeah, yeah. And in fact, the, the Humbert refers to himself as a monster. I mean, that's part of the uh, part of the setup that he knows he's perverted. You know, he knows he's ruined this woman's life. He knows he knows all that. You know. Um, and yeah, you have to obviously uh, separate the narrator from the author in in, in so many books, you know. Um, so yeah, don't let that dissuade you. No, it's it's just one of the great literary accomplishments. And uh, I, I, you know, if I if I were a professor, I'm not, and I was teaching a introduction to literature course for people who think about becoming English majors, I would assign, assign Lolita. And if I had any students who refused to read it or hated it because of the subject matter, I would tell them, you know, go go do something else. Leave the class, go become a business major or something. Because if you're going to be a literature major and a literature lover, you have to be able to see past the subject matter of a book and, you know, appreciate the artistry. And, you know, there's artistry galore in Nabokov. And that's what literary studies should be about, you know, the artistry of a work, you know, the craftsmanship that put into it. And that's an extraordinarily well-crafted book. And any student who couldn't see that or didn't appreciate that, I would just tell them, you know, you're not suited for literary study. Simple as that. You would be a, a good one for book club recommendations. We've done... We've done the tunnel. We've done the recognitions twice. We've done Ulysses. We've done uh, Leaves of Oh House of Leaves, and we did uh, Infinite Jest. You know, which ones are we missing that we need to do? Oh boy! Uh... But they all, you know, they fall into that category that I was trying to. You know, some people say they're encyclopedic novels, or um, I, I just think they're like they're hard books. They're not. Brighterly is a good way to think about him. Yeah, you, you guys haven't. Well, I'll just run through some of my favorite writers. Uh, John Barth. I think several of his books are certainly worthy of uh, discussion. Um, Robert Coover, The Public Burning, especially, is just an incredible masterpiece. Uh, it came out about the same time as J.R. Uh, oh, you, you haven't done any Pynchon yet? Yeah, we we did a uh, crying oh. a lot forty nine, of course. Um, okay, yeah, that's, that's, and but we always are flirting um, with gravity's rainbow as well, which I've I've read before, but I yeah. feel like I need to read again to <laughs> begin to understand. That yeah, that's another tough one. Your, your first reading of that is just a like I said a warm up for uh, a second reading. You know, hopefully with some sort of reader's guide next to you. Um, who else? Volman? Do you like William Volman? Yeah, and I wanted... So I know that you've written a little bit about him. Did you read his, uh... Oh, Nez Perce War book? I forget what it's called. Uh, yeah. Right, the, uh... Dying Grass or something? Yeah. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. I had a real trouble getting through that. Yeah, that's his most experimental, most uh, trying novel. Yeah, now, I would recommend something like The Atlas, uh, which is a, this, I think one of the, probably his best book because it's written in a variety of styles of short stories that all kind of work together. And the, the, the uh, display of his mastery of different genres and styles is just extraordinary. And it's quite a moving book, but no, definitely something by Volman. I mean, I think when the uh, dust settles, he's going to emerge as, you know, one of the you know, Gaddis grade uh, writers of the, the second half of the, um, of our, of our time, you know, he, him and Wallace and yeah, Daniel Lewski, maybe, um, well, who else have you uh, have you read Cormac McCarthy? I'm reluctant to admit uh, to uh, recommend him because I avoided him for a long time because I don't like violence, you know, visceral violence, and I always heard that they were. Dave uh, Wallace used to always be recommending him to me, but I finally re- got around to reading Blood Meridian, and that is a pretty extraordinary uh, achievement. I mean, just linguistically and showing the, the imperialistic side of what America was doing down in the Southwest at that time, you know, this 1840s or whatever, you know, that's quite a book. 
And then there's all you know, all other standbys. Um, I have to admit, I never read um, Toni Morrison's Beloved until recently. Just, and I was blown away by how good that is. That's another extraordinary novel. God, there's so many of them. I don't know where to start as far as recommending things. That's what's so fun about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also recently read uh, people like Updike and Roth. I used to read when I was younger, but kind of ignored them. But just recently I went back and I read uh, Updike's The Centaur, which is a really, really fine novel. Wallace liked that one too. And then just recently I read um, Roth's Sabbath, Sabbath's Theater, which is a late 90s uh, novel he wrote, which is, again knocked me out. So uh, even some of those people that you just kind of take for granted, you know, um, like you know Roth and Updike, you know they can they they have some wonderful works under their under their uh, belts. Stanley Yelkin is another favorite of mine. When you find someone you like, do you usually uh, read everything, or do you just read one of theirs and then come back to them later? Are you the kind that just is like, okay, this is interesting, I'm going to read everything they've done? I I'm the latter. Yeah, I uh, when I first. Uh, Let's see, like, yeah, when I first read Coover in the 70s, it was the public burning. So I immediately went back and found his um, you know, the baseball book, whatever that's called, J. Henry, the Universal Baseball Association. And I went and then I read his stories and all that, and they kept up with them. And uh, same with Gas, same with Stanley Elkin. Yeah, I'm, I'm a kind of a completist. If I, in Barth, I've read everything his, everything by Pynchon. Um, yeah, I, I tend to do that. Unless it's a really weird, distinctive novel that doesn't sound like what the author's uh, done elsewhere. I can't think of a title right off the top of my head, but you know, there's those kind of writers. For example, I, I like a few of Don, like Don DeLillo. I like a few of his books, but not well enough to go back and read virtually everything he's written. Hmm. Yeah, I really... That's another one for your, your... That's a good one for your book club. You ought to read Libra. That's that's an extraordinary novel by Don DeLillo. Yeah, we did uh, Underworld, which we really appreciated. Ah. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so, but you mentioned in passing that that was your last, your last book. The, the Al- I haven't ever read Alexander Theroux either. How come it's your last book? Why did you decide that you're not writing anymore? I'm just kind of tired of writing. Um, that two-volume history of the novel I wrote uh, just exhausted me. I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's something. Uh, the first volume is 700 pages. Yeah. Yeah, and the second one is 1,000 uh, pages long, and that required so much reading and so much work and just nonstop writing, and I just felt like I'd you know, run a decathlon after I finished that, and I was just kind of exhausted. And um, in later recent years, you know, I'm almost, I, I turned 70 next month, and I just finding my attention span is will uh, fading, and my typing skills are deteriorating, and and I've written so much at this point that uh, I was afraid that my my style was um, deteriorating too. I wasn't um, I wasn't right, you know, um, wasn't as sharp and as good as I think I used to write. So I, I figured it's time to hang 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 up the gloves. So then, usually uh, this is when I ask uh, guests what they're working on next. But so then, how do you pass your time now? Well, just uh, reading and uh, listening to music. I'm a great music lover. I used to be a musician when I was younger, so that occupies a lot of my time. Um, I occasionally do freelance uh, indexing work for various university publishers. So that takes up a little bit of time, but mostly I'm in retirement mode now. And I just, you know, reading for pleasure and uh, listening to music and, you know, watching occasional movies. We're, we're running down the clock here, but I'm, I'm curious. I, I saw in your bio that you were a, a bass player in the 70s uh, and you also were yeah. a ballet dancer. So, yeah, I was in a band. I was in a band with a guy who belonged to this ballet company. And one Christmas season, he told me Do you, they, they need they always need guys for the Nutcracker uh, Christmas Nutcracker. And they just you know men who stand in the background mostly and maybe dance a waltz or something. And he asked me if I'd be willing to do that. And I said, Yeah, that sounds like fun, especially to be around all these beautiful young ballerinas. So 
I did that for a season and really liked it. And they offered me free uh, ballet lessons as long as I made myself available for any other future um, you know, productions. So I did that for like four or five years. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And man, I was the best physical shape of my life. <laughs> ballet it looks easy, but man, they work you like a dog to, to achieve that ease uh, on stage. So yeah, I did that for about five years. So I'm just I'm thinking about Wyatt now and like uh, those seven moments you have where you actually experience reality. I think uh, the kind of time that Nabokov was getting at in Ada, you know, it's like the these moments. Do you feel like you've had you know your seven moments? <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I I try to take a really hard, rational look at the way the world actually is, and that's what why it's trying to do. Look through everything, and I think that's more important now than any time because we have so much disinformation, so many lies, so many conspiracy theories, so much you know that it's more important than ever to see the world as it actually is. And um, I've always you know tried to do that. That's why I've, I've been an atheist since I was a teenager, for example. And I try to see the world in that way. And I, I think it's more important than ever now. In fact, one of the books I, I told you I was an indexer, I just finished indexing a book on QAnon. And oh my God, those people, you know, they're so convinced they're right. And, you know, it's so essential that you need to, you know, uh, gird your life to, with facts and, you know, and what's empirically true, not just believing whatever you want to believe. And that's unfortunately, there's too many of those people, more and more of those people around. Uh, I wasn't surprised to read that evangelicals make up a large part of uh, the QAnon crowd. That's another group living a fantasy about. Uh, so you, you really, yeah, it's more important than ever to you know recognize, as Gaz said, uh, what's true and what isn't. And by true, I don't mean some metaphysical thing. I mean just what's factually true, empirically true. So I've always tried to uh, yeah make as many recognitions as I can in my life. Although I'm sure I, you know, you know. It's hard to see the world exactly as it is, and it might be too harsh to actually uh, to uh, accept the wit that anyway. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Okay. You've been listening to Stephen Moore on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about his work, check out his website at stephenmoore.info. Do check out his reader's guide because that will help you along through the recognitions. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the Sync Book radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much and love and do what you will.
Tell me.